Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Inspiring you to bring God back into the conversation of the day. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Good morning, good morning. Yes, it is a new year. We have new music. We have new opportunities to rise and shine and give God the glory and walk our faith out into the world that God so loves in ways that honor Jesus. And if we're going to do it, we're if we're going to walk, man, we're going to walk like lions. So there's our new um, intro music. Thank you to Paul Perot for all of the fantastic production he does on this show, including our new, I don't know, what do we call that? What is, what is that thing called, Paul? That's the intro. Yeah, there you go. New intro. Or theme bed, if you wish. Intro theme. Theme bed. Yes. New in- See, the, the, the radio people, they have such fancy words. Intro? Look at you with your, fancy? Look at you with your fancy words. <laughs> theme bed. Okay, thank you, Paul, and You're Happy welcome. New Year. And to you. And I mean, I realize you. it's day two, but it's day one for me. So, I Happy New had, Year, man. Hope you had a good time off resting. I did. Thank you. Thank you for all of your diligence um, during my uh, Christmas break. I really appreciate it. Much appreciated. You're welcome. So I am Carmen LeBurge. This is Mornings with Carmen. That is Paul Perot. He is our fantastic producer. Every day he lines up just a wonderful um, group of guests that I get to talk with. And today we're going to talk with Ben Johnson, Peter Kapsner, Bill English, and we're going to round out the day uh, with a conversation with Gwen and Rylan uh, Vogelzang, Gwen is Ryland's mom, and together they have written a book that is going to help all of us understand how to relate to um, people who have autism, and in this case, also Tourette's syndrome. And, you know, we're talking about one in every 59 kids in the world when we're talking about autism. And so I'm just really, I'm looking forward to this conversation. Ryland's uh, spectrum special ability um, is not only autism, but also Tourette's syndrome. And the book is entitled... If I squeeze your head, I'm sorry. Um, and let me just go ahead and tell you, I'm, I'm really, really excited about that conversation. It's going to come in the second half of the second hour. But starting off 2020, I thought I would take a moment to bring things into what we might call focus, that you know, whole 2020 idea. So I'm going to start by asking you, do you see what I see? Do you see what I see um, when you look back and survey history from the perspective of God's eternal redemptive plan? Do you see today through that lens? And do you see the future filled with hope that God has planned for us? Do you see what I see when you look back, when you look at today, when you look at the times in which we live, and when you look at the horizon, when you look at the future set before us, do you see what I see? Uh, I am looking through the lens of not only a biblical worldview, but what I would describe as a gospel, a redemptive worldview. And so um, that's what you're going to hear me talk about, and I hope that I can draw you into that conversation. So are you focused on the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, even as you tend, even as you tend to that list, even as you tend to the list of the things that you must accomplish today, the the things that are set before you? Is there enough margin in your schedule um, to actually keep the divine appointments that God has set for your calendar that you may not yet have on your calendar? That's always a challenge for me, to live with enough margin 
that I can be very present with whatever person is before me in the moment. Um, and that is uh, that is something that I'm I'm really seeking to cultivate in this new year. Are you reading the promises of God in the Bible? You know, there's more than a thousand promises that God has yet to fulfill. Uh, promises in in the Old and the New Testaments. Um, a huge number of promises related to the second coming of Jesus. We we've just come through Advent, where we have talked a lot about the coming of Jesus Christ in human flesh to dwell among us full of grace and truth. We have celebrated Christmas. We have celebrated the birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Are we Are we now living with this hopeful expectation, this great expectation of Christ's second coming? Huge number of New Testament promises related to the second coming, the second advent of Jesus Christ. Are we reading the promises of God in the Bible and living with a hope-filled expectation of those which are currently unfulfilled? Like, right, am I looking today at what God has promised? Um, and Which I guess leads me to the big question, are you in the Word? Or where in the Word are you? Uh, this is a good time of year uh, on this very beginning of the year to make a Bible reading plan and actually commit to it. Not try to read the Bible in 2020, but actually read the Bible in 2020. Maybe not the whole thing. Maybe you can't get through the whole thing. If you want to read with me, um, I have moved from the Gospel of Luke, which we read during the season of Advent. I have moved very naturally into the book of Acts. Luke and Acts is actually one corpus of material written by the same author, seeking to lay out an orderly account, uh, not only of the life of Christ, but of the life of Christ's first followers in the early church. So I am it today in Acts chapter 2. Where in the Word are you? All right, well, waiting in the wings right now is Ben Johnson. He is a pastor. He thinks deeply about the intersection of faith, freedom, democracy, forms of government, poverty, wealth, all kinds of things. He writes for the Acton blog at Acton, A-C-T-O-N dot O-R-G, and he's up next. We'll be right back. is my right, a right given by God, to live a free life, to live in freedom. When we talk about living in freedom, freedom in Christ, and freedom in the world that God so loves, we love to talk with Ben Johnson from the Acton Institute. You can find him at Acton, A-C-T-O-N dot O-R-G. Ben, welcome back. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you, Carmen. I'm on, man. I got, I got, I've got, got ten days of like bound up energy. I know you're, and you're first up, so I don't even know what kind of warning to give you. Right out of the gate, I can't wait. We're gonna, <laughs> we're gonna burst into 2020 together here. It'll be a great we conversation. Are. We are. So one of the things that I have been reading at the end of the year um, are these reports, these sort of annual reports related to not just the persecution of Christians around the globe. But the targeting of people of faith in all kinds of places and in all kinds of ways. I mean, just very recently we've had uh, in Nigeria the the video of an of the execution of eleven Christians by um, you know by the Islamic Fulani herdsmen. There, more than a thousand Christians in Nigeria killed by the Fulani herdsmen just in 2019 alone. Over the weekend, we had a shooting at a church in Texas. Um, we have had the targeting of Jew, Jewish believers not only across the United States, but around the world. Um, violence against people of faith over the holidays. Let me just set that up as a topic. Absolutely. And as you've said, we, we've seen that in both of the holidays that we've celebrated just within the last two weeks. 
uh, numerous attacks by uh, members of a, a, an extremist sect uh, that uh, targets Jewish people during Hanukkah in New York City particularly, and in uh, Jersey City before that in the previous month as people were preparing for Hanukkah. Then, uh, as, as you said, the, the church in Texas where uh, apparently seven different people in the congregation reached for pistols, and uh, eventually one of them, who happened to be an arms instructor, uh, managed to take out an individual. By the way, the individual uh, who, had, who uh, pulled the shotgun in the first place in the Church of Christ in, uh, in Texas, had uh, been given help by the church many, many times, according to reports of uh, people who were there. They'd given him food, but he used to complain when they didn't give him cash, because cash is fungible and he could use it for things uh, other than food. So this is someone who's benefited from the hands of the very people that he tried to kill. You know, I think, Ben, that um, when we... We consider the needs of the world in which we live, and we consider the um, the staggering rates of uh, mental illness. When we talk about people who are homeless, and there I am, I, I realize that I am pull, I'm drawing together a number of threads about this one situation in Texas. Um, this individual's family, you know, has come forward and and talked about his particular mental health challenges, um, his homelessness, and you know, I think that as Christians in living in the midst of uh, such a a really tremendously good economy when we look around we do we continue to see people who are in very desperate need and we as christians we want to address that and we address that collectively through our local congregations and then through networks of ministries um in our own communities and around the world um but i i got to tell you it creates um it creates a little fear when we start talking about um people then returning to the church and, I don't know, acting acting in ways that are, are clearly unacceptable. Well, and the homeless issue is such a, a big part of this because the, the mentally ill segment of the population, the homeless population, is overwhelming. Uh, the U.S. government has studied this. They do annual studies and then uh, supplemental studies from in, uh, organizations that are involved dealing with the homeless find that a very large percentage are, are mentally ill. Uh, people who are adults can't be committed uh, involuntarily unless they are a harm or threat to themselves or others. So it's a challenge, and I think that means that the, the number one uh, organization that's going to deal with this is the church. We're the ones who are dealing with this on the front lines, in soup kitchens, in food banks, in our churches. Many times they're the ones who come in uh, to our to our churches looking for help and connection. Uh, often, oftentimes, and I've dealt with uh, some people who are in this category uh, who are not homeless but were mentally ill and believe they were prophets with a message from God to share with people. And the best that we can do is to try and love them, help them, but make them understand the limitations and the fact that they need help. Uh, make sure that they are taking their medication if there's someone who's in that situation in our church. Something that, because the, the government cannot be involved in this, it's something that we as Christians have to care about others, pray for them, and make sure that they are doing the steps that they need to do for their own mental health and well-being. All right, and before we pivot from this subject um, to another, let me just uh, clarify for folks who may be listening and have not heard anybody in the news cover this. White Settlement, Texas is not named White Settlement um, as some sort of uh, statement against African Americans or in some statement related to slavery. Uh, it, it was a white settlement that was established by white settlers in the midst of an overwhelmingly um, Native American set of communities in this part of the Texas Republic territory at the time. 
um, back in the 1840s. And so, you know, let's be let's be um, careful when we see the word white in something and and not apply our 20, uh, 2019 or 2020 thoughts to that before we do a little research and find out why something is called what it's called. I happen to live on Street Road, which is funny to a lot of people unless you know that the people who homesteaded here were the streets. So there you go. We all get get our names in strange ways. All right. Ben Johnson and I are going to return to this conversation. We're going to talk about the intersection of freedom and poverty and these observations that in the, you know, in the last decade and actually in the last 20 years, um, the world has not gotten more free. Why is that? Why, uh, why is the world less free than it was uh, in prior years? And what's contributing to that? So that conversation up next with Ben Johnson from Acton, A-C-T-O-N dot O-R-G. We'll be right back. If I knew back then, well, I know now. If I understood the what, when, why, and how. Now it's clear to me what it should have done. But hindsight is Twenty twenty vision, Ben Johnson. Don't you wish you had twenty twenty vision going forward, I, not just looking I, backward? Exactly. Uh, <laughs> life uh, must be lived forward, but we can understand it only going backward. George Benson, my, Ben Johnson, great way to start your morning. Yeah, exactly. So my uh, my mom, um, I, I'm sure this was a this was an encouragement. This little phrase that she used, this little statement she used to make, but she would all she anytime that you were uh, looking back at something and you know, I don't know, probably turning it over too many times in her mind. Um, she would say, now, <clears throat> you can only land on the runway in front of you. Beautiful. Yes. How <laughs> evocative. <laughs> yeah, my mom, full of wisdom. Okay, so when we talk about the intersection of poverty and freedom, we talk about the relationship between um the, what the world is going through and enduring, which I increasingly, Ben, I just remind myself that the entire creation is groaning with eager longing for man's redemption. And I just I've become increasingly aware of that groaning um, as we survey the headline news every single day. So talk with us about this intersection of of poverty and freedom and the trends that you are observing. Uh, all over the world, we can see two different trends taking place. One of them is that poverty is being reduced at a rapid rate. Uh, it's truly phenomenal. If you look at the past decade, uh, just over the last 10 years, the number of people who are living on less than $2 a day has fallen from 18% to 8%. So a 10% reduction, uh, you know, 10% of, of the world's population has left that category. We have seen over the last 40 years a, a massive reduction of the number of people living in such extreme poverty that they're falling into, into uh, malnutrition. Uh, we have greater access to electricity. Child mortality rates are falling. It's been a tremendous decade for human progress on a material front. Uh, and yet at the same time, and this is where it gets a little bit tricky, uh, for example, Freedom House uh, ranks this regularly. So does the Cato Institute, the Fraser Institute up in Canada. Several different organizations put out reports, and I look at them, collate them. And you see economic freedom has increased over the last 10 years. Political freedom, though, has slightly decreased all over the world. Freedom House, in its report, agrees that's taken place. Uh, the Cato report, which just came out, said over the last decade, there's been a slight modest reduction overall in, um, in political freedom 
globally and in and in economic freedom in many places as well. So uh, even though poverty is reducing, there has been a slight, very modest reduction in poverty, less than 1%, but enough that it's significant. So when we consider this trend and maybe in conversation with um, trends like human trafficking and the numbers of people around the around the globe who have become commodities. Um, I, f- I feel as if when we talk about freedom, we are not just talking about the freedom to, you know, choose what to believe or the freedom to speak your mind. We're talking in many cases about literal freedom and the freedom to choose what I do to earn money and then to choose, um, you know, where to apply my gifts, talents and abilities in, in order to, you know, earn an income um, that will then enable me to do what I hope and dream to do. That's a different kind of freedom. And we don't talk about it very often, but that kind of freedom is dependent on the form of government um, in which I'm, you know, participating. Talk a little bit about the intersection of all those things. Well, it certainly is. And uh, the fact of the matter is the uh, Cato Report talks about this in some real detail. Uh, they take economic liberties, about half of its total score for freedom all over the world. And they say the reason for that is because Economic liberty affects so much of what we do. Uh, If we don't have the right to choose what we do and we don't have the right to choose how we dispose of our income, we really aren't free in a a lot of very important ways. One of the people who pointed this out is Leon Trotsky, of all people, uh, one of the uh, founders of the Soviet Union, the original Bolsheviks. He said, the old principle, he who does not uh, work shall not eat, has been replaced by a new one, who does not obey shall not eat. And you see that in places like Venezuela, where um, Chavez first and then after his death, Nicolas Maduro, hands out government aid according to whether you support the regime or you do not. So you've had millions of refugees flee that country because they cannot eat because of their principled stance in favor of freedom. At the same time, you see religious liberty depends in large part on whether we have freedom. Uh, for example, there's no way for us to tithe and, and tithe effectively. Uh, if we're not able to keep the fruits of our labor, uh, if we have to sur- if we have to struggle and sur- uh, just merely in survival mode, as uh, so much is happening in Venezuela, there are fewer resources to go around and there are fewer resources for the church to share with those in need. And yet the church gives sacrificially all over the world. So uh, you see that these these two things are tied together. If we don't have the ability to dispose of our money freely, then we don't have the ability uh, to live a life of religious freedom. And the two are intimately correlated the nations that have the highest level of economic freedom also enjoy far greater levels of religious freedom, political freedom, personal freedom in, in terms of uh, freedom from, from slavery and bondage. These two go together, and uh, one cannot stand without the other. That's why I'm so concerned when I look at the world today and I see that 37% of millennials have a favorable view of communism. Not socialism, mind you, communism. Uh, so that, that concerns me about the future of the world uh, and, and indeed the future of faith. And we're going to probably talk about that a lot this year um, in the lead up to the 2020 presidential election here in the United States. Um, but certainly the concerns related to Venezuela and China and, and other places around the world where, um, you know, the regimes are certainly not producing a freedom for their people that is life affirming in any way. Um, so I look forward to those conversations in the year ahead. Uh, you have a great piece posted at Acton um, which, again, let me just remind people, is Acton, A-C-T-O-N dot O-R-G, entitled Clarence Thomas on the Harmony of Faith and Reason. 
I just want to point people to that. Um, you posted it like, you know, two days before Christmas. So people might have missed that. Uh, and again, so if you guys want to grab what Ben Johnson is writing about, go to Acton, A-C-T-O-N dot O-R-G. Excellent piece entitled Clarence Thomas on the Harmony of Faith and Reason. Um, and then more on this intersection of uh, of human freedom and poverty around the world, the state of human freedom in 2019, all by Ben Johnson. Hey, thanks, man. We really appreciate it. Thank you, and God bless, and Happy New Year. Yeah, likewise. Happy New Year. All right, so next up, I've got Peter Kapsner, but i got to give you this little, uh, this little tidbit before we jump to a conversation with Peter. So um, what would you do on New Year's Eve, and where in the world... Uh, no, not where in the world. Where in the world? See, I'm a little off. Where in the world are you today? Happy where New Year. Where in the world? I know. Where in the world is a Carmen San Diego question? Where in the word is a ubiquitous Christian question for every day of the year? So where in the word are you today? I've already told you I'm in Acts chapter two. You're welcome to join me there. If you don't yet have a Bible reading plan, uh, you can Google Bible reading plan and Pick your, you know, pick your version, right? There's a 90-day plan. There's uh, a read through the Bible chronologically in a year plan. There's, there's all kinds of Bible reading plans. Get one. We, my, my church posts one um, on our church website. So maybe your church does as well. Get a Bible reading plan. And don't just try to read the Bible. Actually read the Bible. Commit to reading the Bible. Uh, what is my little news hook for this? On New Year's Eve, over 90,000 young Jewish men celebrated uh, this Talmud m- milestone. For the last seven and a half years, they have been reading the Talmud one page at a time. It took them seven and a half years. It's, a, it's their version of what we would call a Bible reading plan. It's called the Daf Yomi, meaning a page a day. It's a program that allows people to read the entire Talmud one page at a time in seven and a half years. Uh, they first started this in September of 1923 in Poland, and at the end of each cycle, they have this concluding ceremony. And so 90,000 young men gathered uh, on New Year's Eve in the MetLife Stadium in New Jersey to celebrate uh, this milestone. Let me ask you, you know, like, are we celebrating those kinds of milestones with our young people? Are we even setting those kinds of extraordinary plans with our people, Are we are, with our young people? I mean, are we, are we setting that challenge before them? Are we reading with them a page a day? There you go. There's a little encouragement and challenge um, in terms of something we might set our hearts to in the year ahead. Up next, Peter Kapsner, he and I are going to talk about the idea of thresholds, how we move beyond the things of last year into the things of a new year, um, maybe with a real change of heart. So that's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. It's the start of another school year, and for many parents, it's the start of fighting about grades. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. Academic pursuits can cause tension in the home. It makes sense because grades are measurable. But the problem comes when parents confuse grades with personal value. If you want to push your teen to do better in school, start here. First, don't do the homework for your kids. And second, if you see grades drop suddenly, start looking behind the behavior for a cause. And third, recognize your own anxiety when it comes to education. What's your motivation for having high standards? Remember, a grade point average says nothing about the value of your team. Want more help from Mark Gregston? Find books and other resources online at parentingtodaysteens.org.
Peter Kapsner is one of my favorite conversation partners. He's a professor at the University of Northwestern St. Paul. He is, uh, I'm gonna, just going to describe you as, as a pastor. Um, that is certainly a part of your your story, um, and you still actively engage with congregations of a wide variety. Um, and we have people here who consider you their pastor. So, Pastor Peter, mm-hmm. welcome back. <laughs> Thanks, Carmen. It, it certainly is. Uh, one of the things that I appreciate most about just sort of the season of life is that uh, I sort of see myself as a professor practitioner. And, and uh, universities increasingly appreciate professors in the classroom that also are engaged out in whatever their field uh, or discipline might be. So I learn a ton from the classroom related to then the church and vice versa. I learn a ton from being in the church as it relates to the classroom. And it's just, I mean, who gets to do this kind of job where I get to be with different churches and different ministries all day long and and, uh, really learn and kind of get a finger on the pulse of what's happening out there. And you're a podcaster. You've got a podcast. And and you are too. Yeah, we, you and I are podcasters, Carmen. We haven't done a lot of advertising of that yet, has? (laughs) That's because neither of us know how to find it. Well, that's really true. But that, you know, we're, we're in this, we'll just call it the soft launch phase, Carmen. That's what we'll call it. And then we'll go hard launch and, and we'll go global before you know it. Yeah. So people, if you want to find it, it's called The Till. And I know it's on Spotify um, because that's where I find it. Um, and we posted a new one yesterday through the magic of um, our friend and podcast producer, Nat Becker. Uh, so anyway, so <clears throat> you guys can check that out. If you follow me on Twitter, I've just posted it. Uh, on Twitter, I'm at Carmen LaBerge. So, Peter, let's talk about uh, heading into the new year and this idea of thresholds. Why are you using the word thresholds instead of the word resolution? Well, I think threshold is that idea that you can sort of draw from the marriage analogy that when you do, uh, when there's sort of this carrying over the threshold that we talk about post-marriage celebration. Did you do that, by the way? See, I feel like I need to now ask. Did you carry your bride over the threshold? You know, I, I don't. It was it was twenty five years ago, and I and I did. <laughs> Hallie is nodding in the background that I did. She's saying and you I did. Actually, oh, see, see, I Hallie did. would I, remember that. Oh, I know, see, right? That's so good. I, I was I was much. Uh, let's just say I was much more fit and durable back then, uh, <laughs> able to do such things. But uh, <laughs> you know, there, there's this idea that the the symbolism of carrying across the threshold is that when you cross that threshold, you no longer are what you once were. You're moving into a new way of life, a new sense of status. Um, a shift in in some part of your character dimension. And, and in the marital analogy, it's moving from two to one. It's kind of that mm. symbolic move uh, to one flesh. And another time we see this shows up is uh, in really non-individualistic-based societies. <clears throat> they often do initiation rituals. And in the initiation ritual, they take young boys and young girls, maybe 8, 9, 10, 11 years old, and uh, at that time, they separate them from their families for a period of time for an intense period of instruction or an intense period of formation. And those are really threshold moments that when they're done with that period, they come back into the community in a new kind of way. They've left dimensions of their past life behind, and they have new dimensions of a new way of life now moving forward. And so... At the turn of the year, that's why I would use the term threshold moment as opposed to, hey, I'm going to really try to make myself more fit this year. I'm going to try to read more books this year. I'm going to try to do X, Y, Z that might be resolution based. Instead, it's the idea that at least we ask within our family, if 2020 is now this threshold moment as of January 1st, what do we want to leave behind from 2019? And what do we want to carry forward or perhaps shift and change into 2020? And we ask that question each year 
from the Christian view that we are, we're really sort of in the hands of the potter. We are the clay and the great potter, that being God is able to shape us and mold us in that, in that classic line, this is what we pray. And so how would we want the potter to mold us in, in 2020 in ways that are more consistent with his kingdom versus where we were in 2019? So could we maybe use some examples like, all right, maybe I want to leave behind, um, a practice of being debt dependent and I want to, yeah. and I want to move into a life of financial freedom. Like that might be yeah. one way of describing, I want to leave, I want to leave this behind and I want to intentionally move into this new behavior. And I think we are talking about behaviors. We're not just talking about commitments I'm going to make in my mind. We're actually yeah. talking about, I'm going to have to do something different on this side of the threshold unless I want to be in the same position at this point next year that I am right now. If I don't change something intentionally, then I am going to be at either the same place or a worse place at this point in time next year. Yeah, I think that's exactly right, Carmen. And what I love about bringing our Christian faith into the idea of the resolution is then it's not just your own willpower to try to change something, which is why I think resolutions so often fail. The great, uh, one of the great sort of promises and covenants of our Christian faith is that God really can remake us from the inside out because of what happened at the cross and the tomb and through the power of the Spirit, that our interior dispositions and attitudes and values can actually change over time. It's what people refer to as the process of formation, being formed into Christ-like image, means that I obviously and often have disordered realities in my interior world, values that I carry that probably I shouldn't really carry, and so my behaviors tend to flow from whatever my values are or whatever my attitudes and dispositions are. So in, in this space, if I was wanting to become less debt dependent uh, in the Christian worldview, there would be this beautiful invitation and without fear to go into the deep places of the soul with God and wonder, why do I act the way that I do around money? Or why do I act the way that I do around other people? Why do I sort of subtly lie my way through life or what, whatever it happens to be? You can ask those questions of your interior world, again, without fear, because God is for us. And then you go through the process, often slow but real, of seeing those attitudes and dispositions change on the inside that then leads to an entirely different kind of behavior on the outside. And that change in the Christian view becomes permanent. That, that's the transformation process. So that's, you know, there, and it, it, we're not going to become perfect anytime soon, but there really is the idea that you don't even just have to act loving. You can actually become a loving person from which then your acts of love flow. And there isn't any other worldview, secular or religious or otherwise, that has that same beautiful promise that we find within the Christian worldview. So maybe we could leave behind... Um, collectively, we could leave behind um, things like gossip or even talking yeah. down or talking negatively, and we could we could all mutually commit to what I like to call gossip up, you know, where we're, yeah. we're going to talk behind one another's backs in ways that build up and encourage and, you know, where, where you would be excited to hear that somebody was talking about you behind your back because you would know that it was going to be good. It was going to be positive. Right. It was going to be for the upbuilding of the body. I think there are some just very practical, tangible, tangible examples um, of things that we can leave behind uh, if we commit to it. And that, as you have mentioned, in cooperation with the active work of the Holy Spirit, we can move forward into new behaviors that then become, or we then become more conformed to the image of Christ, which is, of course, the goal of discipleship. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, and, it, and it fulfills that great promise where God says, basically, lean into me or delight mm. in me. 
and I will give you the desires of your heart. And if we're not careful, we might misinterpret that passage to mean that if I just trust God, then the desires that I currently have, whatever they may be, will be fulfilled. And actually what that passage is suggesting is that if you lean into or delight yourself in God, he will begin the process of reordering your desires so that they're consistent with the kingdom. And in that place is where you find actual real freedom and not all the false freedoms of our day. Mm. I'm writing down that I am going to ask God to reorder my disordered desires. Yeah, I have to do I mean, I think that for me, that's a huge starting point, right? That's a huge, I have to, I have to want something different before. Yeah, Yeah. that's really good. All right. Hey, you and I need to take a quick break. When we come back, um, let's talk about this Christian withdrawal article that we both read um, in in the Atlantic. We're going to talk about culture engagement, but we're also going to talk about this, I don't know, trend toward Christian withdrawal. Uh, Peter Kapsner continuing the conversation up next on Mornings with Carmen. Be strong in the Continuing my conversation with Professor, Pastor, friend Peter Kapsner. Um, Peter, let's talk about Christian engagement and Christian withdrawal. There is a little bit of push-pull here. Um, I I am attracted to both models. I want to engage culture as a Christian. I also increasingly um, would like to go live as a hermit. Talk, just yeah. talk with us. Talk with us about this push-pull. Yeah, I think we're, you and I are not alone in that, Carmen, in the sense that uh, we that, that combination, right, of engagement, being equipped believers to shine a light in the midst of, you know, all of the places in this world that, that we would need to, but also sort of this desire to withdraw. I'm in, in Scotland right now, and I'm about two hours away from the Highlands, and if I could survive at all outside of electricity and plumbing for even two hours, I might might think about it. But um that that's sort of the historic tension within the Christian faith is that you see long stretches where people like the monks or people like the Essene community of Jesus's day felt like they had to get out of the hassle and hustle and bustle of sort of a secularized society simply so that they could preserve and live within a way of life that uh, wasn't then just always bombarded with the pressures around them. So, so this sense of withdrawal, uh, when you and I feel that way, we're tapping into a pretty lengthy Christian tradition that has a lot of legitimacy to it, because it's pretty easy to get swept away uh, by the tides of the culture when you're living within it. And it hardly ever you get swept away just on one day. It's it's sort of the subtle ways of life that bleed into our own ways of life day after day after day after day when we're just trying to make a way in the world. So to withdraw, I think, is is something that has always been attractive on some levels to thoughtful believers. But on the flip side, you want to have this idea that we're actually being equipped as we withdraw to then shine a light in the midst of the hustle and the bustle and the busy parts of society. So that push-pull is there, and it's pretty interesting to see that there is increasing momentum for different kinds of movements, not just even Christian movements in the United States, but this article to which you refer in The Atlantic is uh, is referencing that there are Jews that are skeptical of assimilation, there are African-Americans that are skeptical of the way they're being treated in society, there are Yiddish-speaking farms, there are people that are environmentalists that want to just sort of live their own way of life, and the Christians, of course, in this article, too, are moving to rural places in America, starting little villages where they don't have to live with all the pressures of secularization that are telling them what they have to do and how they have to think. Which leads us to this conversation about um, St. Mary's, Kansas. Um, this is fascinating. I mean, this is totally is. fascinating. First of all, the photograph mm-hmm. of the people at the top of the article makes no one want to move there. 
Yeah, I know, right? right. <laughs> I was like picture. totally creeped out by that picture. But um, feeling out of step with the mores of contemporary life. This is the uh, this is the subhead in the Atlantic article, the Christian withdrawal experiment. Feeling out of step with the mores of contemporary life. Members of a conservative Catholic group have built a thriving community in rural Kansas. Could their flight from mainstream society be a harbinger for the nation? Um, just to, just give us a little briefing on um, on St. Mary's, Kansas. Yeah, so it is a group uh, specifically of people from the Catholic community that really want to orient their way of life entirely around the Catholic faith. And it's you would think when you hear something like that, maybe it's only a bunch of 50-year-old plus like you and me that might be moving into a community like that, but it's drawing lots and lots of young families so that they can go ahead and, and practice their Catholic faith without a lot of intrusions from maybe the government or schools or whatever it happens to be. And so it, it's interesting to just—it's too long to try to summarize the entire article in terms of their way of life, but they really are feeling the freedom to live by their Catholic values. And as I was thinking about this, Carmen, it really does connect even the founding of our nation in a lot of ways. When you think about how so many communities like the Puritans and others wanted to get away from England because they had this sense in which that the government or the king in that case was controlling their ways of life. And even financially, specifically, we know that phrase that there was taxation without representation, that they were forced to do things, but their way of life couldn't be represented, and so doing things financially. So they wanted to move primarily so that they would be free to represent their own ways of life, and, and often primarily religiously. And we kind of see that's what's happening in this community, too. I wouldn't say it's taxation without representation, but I might suggest that it's secularization without representation, meaning that if you're going to participate in mainstream America these days, and, and this is where the backlash really is coming from at St. Mary's, is you are forced to have to think and act and be like what the secular authorities are telling you in terms of how to think and act and be, whether it's governmental authorities or school authorities. And they're just moving simply so that they can be free of all of that hassle and all the pressure and they can live their own way of life. I'm sure that um, those who do not appreciate people of faith are going to um, find all kinds of reasons to um, really mm, negatively examine this whole trend. But but Rod Dreher, who wrote The Benedict Option, is now in contact with, as you have described uh, early in this conversation, dozens of communities from Alaska to Texas um, who are sort of engaged in this kind of experiment. They are creating communities, entire towns, uh, where they are living in decidedly Christian community with one another. Um, we'll see how this goes, and we'll also see how um, this sort of pseudo-Benedict option uh, begins to affect the culture as these children grow up in these communities and then move away from these communities into uh, into other par parts of the culture. Peter, you and yeah. I probably have to leave it right there. Thank you, as always. Looking forward to, uh, to 2020 with you. Um, safe travels back home. Yeah, thanks so much, Carmen. Great to hear your voice again, and Happy New Year. Happy New Year. We'll be right back. It is a new year, and uh, I'm wondering how you are thinking and feeling and processing this transition, not just from one year to another, one decade to another, um, but into, you know, 2020. Do you feel like God has given you a vision for this year or the coming decade? Um, are you living into the future filled with hope that God has planned with this great expectation? Did you think we would 
make it this far? Did you did you actually think that 2020 would would come? Do you remember the Jetsons? Like this this is compelling to me. Um, it was like 30 some years ago that by 2020 everybody expected to be driving flying cars and going to the moon for vacation and um, other such things. We were going to have uh, we were going to have like a. Uh, a nanotech layer of skin that was going to constantly report on our health and welfare um, to whom it was reporting. I'm not really clear, but it was going to monitor our health so that we would all actually be able to keep those commitments to um, better nutrition and better exercise and sleep and all those kinds of things. I I don't know about you. I don't have a nanotech skin suit yet. I just have the flesh suit that God gave me and it's a temple of the Holy Spirit. And I am really committed to treating it uh, more as a temple in 2020 than I did in 2019. What about you? What are uh, what thresholds are you moving across? What are you leaving behind? What are you committing to in 2020 uh, in terms of the cooperation of the active work of the Holy Spirit in your life? These are some of my thoughts this morning. What are yours? You can always communicate with me. You can text me at 877-933-2484 or you can email me Carmen at MyFaithRadio.com. we got a whole other hour of Mornings with Carmen up next. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.